Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're uh, back here with Ask the Agronomist again from a uh, uh, another remote location this week. I'm coming to you from uh, the heart of Chris Callal's territory, actually in Springfield, Illinois. Uh, we're all here to, at a team meeting, which is uh, which is awesome that we're able to get back out and and start doing a few meetings under uh, uh, modified restrictions. And so I've got about half of our sales team here with us today that uh, may contribute a little bit from the uh, from the live studio audience here. Uh, we've got uh, a few questions that have uh, come in over the last couple of weeks and things that I've been observing in fields. Uh, so we'll touch on that. And also, as always, uh, love to have your live questions, uh, chat them in. If you can uh, sign into YouTube, if you have a YouTube account, or if you uh, do not, if you just have a Gmail account, whatever way you can get signed into YouTube, you can uh, live chat those questions in. If your FSR happens to be here in the room, you can uh, text them a question and, and they can uh, chat those in. Uh, we've got uh, producer Adam here as, as usual, and, and Adam and I will uh, will jump into things here in a moment. So thanks again for joining us on Ask the Agronomist. Uh, we do this every other week. Uh, we are exploring uh, ideas of, of better times when, when we might do this. So if you have any thoughts on a better time of day than 7.30 in the morning, we usually go for about an hour. Uh, we've thought about right after lunch. We've thought about like a happy hour uh, late later in the day. Uh, I, I'm very flexible. So whatever day makes it easier for you or whatever time of day makes it easier for you to participate. Uh, we are thinking about uh, experimenting with some different times. And if we end up uh, moving to a different time, we'll make sure and, and let you know. So I will um, I will kind of kick things off just here with a little recap of, uh, of what we're seeing out in the field. Obviously, we got rain and storms coming through the area again today, uh, which are, are really unnecessary with the amount of moisture that we've had uh, really over the past, well, really most of the growing season. We've been on the surplus side of moisture. We did have areas of the territory that were really dry uh, early in the spring, and, and those areas that were borderline, you know, damagingly dry early, that turned out to be a good thing for those areas because the surplus rain that came later, if, if you had a dry subsoil, you, you had a little better capacity to hold some of that excess moisture. But we're we're really to the point now where, you know, nowhere in central Illinois uh, does anyone not have a fully recharged subsoil. The, uh, the, the subsoil moisture is uh, clear to the surface in some cases. A lot of fields you drive by, there's uh, ponds, you can see water between the rows, and, and it's really... Uh, really discouraging to see how much uh, potential that we've lost due to excess moisture. It's especially sad when you consider all the places in the country that are still begging for rain. And uh, I sure wish we could share some of our extra with them. Would have been better for uh, for everybody if we could have kind of redistributed the moisture. But uh, we'll get through that. We'll probably spend some time talking about the impact that that's having on crops here today. And, um, and if you have any questions, again, please uh, please chat them in. So, Adam, we'll uh, we'll kick it over to you. What's uh, what, what's first on the uh, on the menu? Yeah. So this morning, I think uh, where I'd like to start off chatting until we get some questions and anybody coming in with any uh, questions again, please let your rep know. You can text them. You can do a lot of different things to communicate any questions. We like to chat, but there's been plenty of conversation. We've had the hail, some very bad hail yeah. in different parts of the area. Yep, sure have. Um, and I know that's a hot topic, so I'm just going to start out there. Let's let's talk about corn first. Right. Uh, if we've got some hail damage on corn, you know, how impactful is that due to where we're at with the growth and development process in corn? And what are some things that we should or shouldn't consider giving the degree of damaging hail yeah. the impacts we've had? Yeah, so <clears throat> unfortunately, my territory has been impacted by two of the worst hail events that I've seen in, in my career. Uh, one about a month ago that we've talked about on two previous Ask the Agronomist, and uh, some re fair amount of replanting occurred in, in that area that was in southern Knox and northern Fulton County. And, and then here more recently in Hancock County, we had another severe hail event. You know, the outcome of those two storms was quite a bit different because of the stage of growth of the crop was different in, in each case. So <clears throat> the most recent hail event, Hancock County on tasseled corn, uh, if you look at a defoliation chart, which is kind of what we, the first thing we go to, when we're trying to assess what the impact of a hailstorm is going to be. If you look at a defoliation chart on corn, the most yield damaging time to defoliate corn is at tassel. 
reason for that is that crop has done nothing to fill that ear yet. So it is just getting ready to go into the most stressful peak time of its life. And it has all of its leaves have already formed and emerged. So it has no capacity to grow new leaves at that point. And the factory that it was going to use to produce the grain has just been diminished significantly. So if you look at the defoliation chart on corn, you find VT for vegetative uh, growth stage tasseling. And you go over to whatever percent defoliation you feel you're at. It, it is sometimes easy to overestimate the amount of defoliation because a, a leaf that has been battered and stripped and is hanging in tatters is still a leaf. It is still green. It can still capture sunlight. Now, it's not going to capture sunlight as efficiently as if it was hanging out there like it's supposed to be. But any green tissue on that plant, leaf sheath, even the rind of the stalk, um, but primarily the leaves uh, can photosynthesize, can produce food and nutrients to, to feed and try to sustain that plant. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, if that leaf area is still there in some shape or form, uh, it will still contribute to yield. But if you look at, at corn that's been 70 or 80 percent defoliated, which I've been in some fields that I would say probably reached that level, um, you're talking 60 percent or better yield reduction. Uh, based on defoliation. And then if you've had your, your lot of tassels knocked out, you could be worried about pollination. Now, honestly, I'm not as worried about pollination because <clears throat> two reasons. You, you can destroy a lot of tassels and still have plenty of pollen to get the job done. And, and frankly, if you've got a plant that can only support a third to half an ear, uh, even if it doesn't pollinate perfectly well, you're probably still going to end up with more kernels on that ear than that plant's able to sustain anyway. So if those fields do pollinate clear out to the tip, um, you know, they're just going to abort a tremendous amount of kernels because they're not really going to be able to feed and fill all those kernels. So <clears throat> corn is, is more impacted than soybeans. Now driving by the soybean fields almost look more alarming than corn fields because there's no leaves left on the soybeans and they're just sticks and petioles and branches and stems sticking up out in the field. And, and they just really look really, really sad um, as does the corn, but you know, the corn's still standing there. You know, the beans almost kind of disappear because if you strip all the leaves off of a soybean plant, there's just not much left there to, to see. So <clears throat> just like corn um, is, is a little bit surprising to the bad side, Soybeans are actually surprising to the good side in that if you look at an R2 soybean, which is probably the growth stage that a lot of these early planted soybeans were in, uh, if you strip 80, 90, even 100% of the leaves off of a R2 soybean plant, you're talking about a 15-ish percent yield hit, which that's hard for people to believe that it's not worse than that when you look at the field. Now, it could be worse than that for a couple different reasons. Um, if you'd gone out there and clipped all those leaves off with a pair of scissors and done no damage to the stem, no damage to the nodes, no damage to the petioles, no damage to the rest of the plant, I really think that's, that's probably all the yield loss you would suffer. However, in a hailstorm, especially if you have bigger hail, uh, you've got broken branches, you've got broken stems, you've got broken nodes, you've kind of battered that plant. So in addition to the defoliation, there's some other physical damage that occurs that I think is probably going to contribute to the yield loss. But soybeans are hurt far less than corn, primarily because they've got a lot of vegetative growth left ahead of them. Those soybeans are going to get new leaves out. They're going to get more branches out. They're going to get more flowers out. You know, they're really just, you know, they've got probably more than half of their growing left to do. And so they've got more potential to recover because they've got more potential to, to continue to grow versus corn, which is, which is fully developed. So that's kind of the, you know, the way I would assess uh, damage. I'd look at the percent defoliation. I'd look at the other physical injury on the plant um, and, and try to, you know, factor in as much as you can. You know, if there's some green snap and corn, in addition to the defoliation, you know, need to factor that in as well when you're trying to assess what the yield potential is. When it comes to fungicide, you know, this is kind of a, a heated topic. I, I do think that there is, um, you know, there are lots of good opportunities to do some tests, do some trials. As an agronomy guy, I love to compare things. 
So great opportunity to go out in some of these damaged fields and spray half the field crossways, spray a, a couple rounds diagonally across the field, see what kind of response we have. In, in my opinion, the worst of the worst cornfields probably are not worth investing in a fungicide at this point to me. Because not that the fungicide wouldn't help that plant, but if you've got a plant that's lost 60% or more of its yield potential, can you really add enough extra bushels to offset the cost of making that application? That's what I'm not so sure about. Now, on the, <clears throat> on the fringes of the storm, where you've got corn plants that were defoliated 20, 30, 40%, let's say, kind of tattered and, and wounded, but not completely destroyed, you know, I think that would be a, a good field to be investing in a fungicide in to protect the remaining leaf area that that plant has. On soybeans, I, I do think I'm going to stay the course with my R3 fungicide on a lot of these hailed on soybean fields, assuming that we've got new growth that comes out. I wouldn't rush out there and spray them now. It's a little bit early anyway. We need to wait, let them recover, let them get some new growth out, let them re get new leaves out start to grow again and when that soybeans in that r3 stage which r3 can can last quite a while sometimes we'll probably spend some time talking about staging and and when's the best time to put a fungicide on here this morning but <clears throat> assuming that that field is recovering and you walk out there and they're in the r3 stage and you're looking at that field and you're going man i can't believe how good this thing looks compared to right after the storm these things really have come back you know you're starting to feel a little more optimistic that the field's going to amount to something I, I think a field like that, I would still invest in that in that R3 fungicide and insecticide application to uh, protect those plants. I did have a dealer uh, call me a couple days ago that's in, the, in this hail affected area. I had noticed a lot of Japanese beetles had moved into some of these soybean fields and they were going to actually make some applications to control Japanese beetles. His concern was there's enough insect pressure there that they may be feeding on those leaves as fast as they're growing. And, you know, controlling those insects might give those soybean plants a, a better opportunity to recover. The problem with Japanese beetles is you really can't keep them out of the fields. So even if you do a good job controlling them, if three days later, you know, new ones have moved back in, I don't know that you can keep them out without making sequential applications. But just be aware if you do have heavy insect pressure, heavy Japanese beetle feeding, uh, that is going to be an additional stress on those plants that are trying to get new leaves out and recover um, might, might be something to watch for. Yeah, so just uh, to carry on with the whole hail theme, luckily in our footprint, uh, you know, that's the minority, yes. fortunate for some, yeah. but right. What's what's going to be our outlook for weed control? And obviously, these beans have been stripped. Right, they're leafless, closing the canopy. What's our outlook on our, on our weed control issues there with some of those? Right. Yeah. So, so relative to the hailstorm, obviously, when you lose your canopy late in the season, um, never a good thing for weed control. So, weed control is going to suffer. We we've got plenty of weed control issues that we could talk about that don't even have anything to do with hail. So I have a, I have a, um, a general concern that this will be the weediest crop we've had in, in, in many years for multiple reasons. Some of that's weather related, some of that's management related, some of it's just <clears throat> challenges of getting applications made, again, due to weather. But uh, I think in general, you know, by harvest, we might be looking at some of the weedier soybean fields that we've seen in several years. But the hailed on fields are, are, are gonna get are going to get messy. <clears throat> uh, if you haven't been out in cornfields, um, morning glory uh, pressure is intense this year. And there really are very few programs being used in corn that will give you season long morning glory control uh, in a year like this. So if you've had corn that was impacted by hail and you've already noticed that you've got more morning glories than you'd like to see, the amount of sunlight getting to the soil surface and the amount of moisture that we've had, that's going to just really release uh, a lot of those weeds that would typically be suppressed by the shading effect of the crop canopy. And, and really, <clears throat> from, from this time of the year on, really all of our weed control is coming from competition from the crop and shade in the canopy. Um, you know, we hopefully our herbicides kept the field clean up till, you know, this point from here on, 
most of the weed control is actually coming from the, the shading effect of the crop because regardless of how strong the residual product you used two months ago was, that product is gone at this point. And especially when you factor in the amount of moisture that we've had. So <clears throat> from here on out, really what we rely on is crop canopy. And if you've lost your crop canopy, uh, you, you really don't have much to, to protect you there. So I would be prepared uh, if you've got a crop in the field that, you know, even if it's an extend field and all you can spray is Roundup from, from this point on out, you know, we can still get a lot of weed control from, from a glyphosate application. Can't control water hemp in most cases, but, you know, velvet leaf, giant ragweed, foxtail, uh, morning glories, for example, you know, basically, you know, for the most part, anything other than water hemp, we can get pretty good activity out of a glyphosate application. So, you know, if you've got a, uh, a Liberty option, you might want to use that. If you don't, you know, I'd, I'd still maybe consider a, a late glyphosate application. We want to stay on label with these applications, which can get challenging. You know, we all know that, that, that Canva has, you know, cutoff dates and, and restrictions that keep us from applying it season long. Well, all herbicides have restrictions based on growth state. So, you know, might surprise you that, um, you know, with the case of, of 2,4-D, like on an enlist bean, uh, R2 would be the cutoff. Um, R1, R2 is the cutoff on Liberty. Uh, R2 is the cutoff on glyphosate. So, so basically these beans are, are really approaching the end of the labeled stage for all herbicides. So just be aware that there really is not any herbicide that's labeled to apply on soybeans after R2. So, so just be, be aware of that if you're considering, you know, doing some late weed control. Yeah, so we've had some pretty tough growing conditions in some ways this year. We've been ebbing and flowing. Some people have had a little dry spell, but generally speaking, wet. And a lot of our crops seem to be shorter this year. Mm -hmm. Corn and soybeans both. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, more noticeably than anything is probably the soybeans. Right. And there's con some concern about that. We've already addressed the weed control issues a little bit, but, you know, are these soybeans not getting any taller for us? Is that really indicative of how well the crop is set up to yield? And should we be trying to push that crop, that soybean crop with some fungicide activity, maybe mm -hmm. some uh, foliar nutrient application and things like this? Mm -hmm. I mean, how much hope and potential should we put in these soybeans or should we be really scared of the fact that they're a little stunted and sometimes yellowed? <laughs> Due to well, the weather that we've been seeing this year. Well, well, Adam, that, that is the perfect question for the standard agronomy answer of it depends. Um, you know, when, when when you when you pack that much into a question, it really makes it easy for the agronomist to to, to pull the uh, the it depends lever. So, I got to pack it all in there because you'll cover it all. Yeah. Give me a chance to unfold that that onion if I don't, Lance. Yeah. So 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 I, I think I'd like to address the the height um, you know issue first. So. In the in the case of soybeans, um, we started out cool, we started out dry in some cases, then we got tremendously wet. And so when it's cool, we were suppressing vegetative growth. When it's dry, we were suppressing vegetative growth. And now that we've been in saturated soil conditions, we're once again suppressing vegetative growth. So in one way or another, either because it was too cool, too dry, or too wet, uh, we've been suppressing vegetative growth really all growing season long. So that's the primary reason the soybeans are short. And, um, and oftentimes during those cool and wet periods, there wasn't very much sunshine. You know, mm -hmm. solar, solar and photosynthesis capabilities were definitely reduced. Right. So, so there, you know, and to answer your question about yield, there really is no correlation between height and yield in soybeans. Uh, I've seen knee-high soybeans that make 80 bushel, and I've seen chest-high soybeans that make 40. Um, so, so there really isn't a direct correlation between height and, and yield. Now, I am concerned um, that we are not going to achieve the kind of soybean yields this year that we have been accustomed to. Uh, not so much because they're short, necessarily, but because of the excess moisture, because of the ponding, because of the saturated soils. You may have heard someone say before that soybeans don't like wet feet. Corn really doesn't either. There really isn't a crop other than maybe rice that uh, is okay with wet feet conditions. But uh, soybeans have, have really suffered more from excess moisture than corn. So as you're driving past soybean fields and you've got those 
large areas that are stunted and yellow. And, and even if you don't have drowned out spots in a field, we've all got the places that almost drowned out. And, and in those areas, we've got poor root health. We've probably lost our nodules on those soybean plants. Um, you know, nitrogen fixation is going to be an issue for those plants. The, the plants being suffocated, the roots just can't breathe. They really can't take up nutrients. The plant's not growing. So <clears throat> that's a, a very stressful scenario for the soybean plants. And, and unfortunately, when we're harvesting this fall, uh, that yield monitor is going to pick up all those areas that were yellow and you're driving through, you know, 80 bushel beans and you dive off into an area and they drop to 40. Uh, you may want to think back to what that area looked like in June and July. And uh, if that's where the pale green, yellowish, stunted looking soybeans were, um, you know, they're not going to be able to fully recover. So your question about, you know, is there anything we can do to help them? Um, you know, we can always do things to help crops. We can always do things that the crop would appreciate. Um, my challenge, you know, when I put my farmer hat on is, can I make money doing it? So we, we really don't need to do things or I don't like to recommend things to growers that they can't get a positive ROI on. Um, you know, are these soybeans deficient in nutrients? Do they have diseases going on? Are they under stress? Can fungicides and foliar fertilizers help all those situations? A absolutely. But if your crop is about to die because it's in a pond or it's in a very saturated wet soil condition, uh, can you really help it enough to get enough bushels to offset the cost of that application? And, and in some cases, you probably can't. Um, I, I'm going to fall back to you know my standard recommendation of I would rather make a good field better then try to rescue a bad field. And I think the better your field is, the more likely you are to get a response. <clears throat> I did make an application on my own farm uh, about a week or 10 days ago, where we, we went out with a reduced rate of a strobe fungicide, some insecticide and some foliar uh, nutrition, just trying to kind of give soybeans a little bit of a pick me up at about R1. And then we'll come back at R3, maybe R3-ish with my, you know, Delaro application, <clears throat> application of leverage. So I'm going to come back with my full rate, good fungicide, good insecticide at that traditional R3 timing. So it was an additional application that I don't always make. Uh, my hope was that I could help those soybeans uh, get a little more growth, uh, have a little better health. But I'll be honest, my part of the country, um, you know, has not been flooded as bad as some other areas. So my bad spots and fields were smaller. So I would say most of the fields that I made that application in, 80% of the field looked pretty good. And, and I think that's probably where I'll get the bigger benefit uh, is in the 80% of the field that looks pretty good. If 80% of your field looks pretty bad, I'm not sure the 20% that's good can respond enough to offset the money that you're spending on the 80% that's bad. So, <clears throat> you know, we talk about not, not giving up on a crop, um, but at some point, you know, if you're not going to make money doing something, you're just kind of throwing good money after bad. So I, I do think there are some fields that due to hail, due to ponding, due to, you know, drowned out spots, um, you know, probably at this stage of the game, I would not be investing additional money in. Just take what you get and uh, hopefully the crop that you get, plus maybe the insurance that you payment that you might qualify for will kind of keep you whole on that farm. Uh, but probably not, um, you know, in every situation should we be investing in foliar feed and fungicides and, and other things. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a lot of variability out there this year. I think there's a lot of potential still out there, too, uh, even though there is a lot of variability yep. for our crops to yield pretty well. And a lot of that probably has to do with water management and how well the field Right. Is able to get the, rid of surface the, water and obviously tiling and things the, like that. This will be, um, I think we've got a question in the room here. I'll get you in a minute, Dan. Um, <clears throat> this will be one of those years where having um, good natural drainage will pay better than having good soil. So if you've got a field that, you know, regardless of soil type that the water could get off of, we, we've obviously had plenty of moisture that, that drought stress is not going to be an issue. Uh, those fields that tend to lay wet that, uh, you know, either need a better tile system or need a tile system or you can't surface drain. And, and frankly, the amount of moisture that we've had 
nobody's got a tile system that was designed to handle what what we've had. So there's even some well tiled fields that are going to suffer due to saturated soils. The fields that are probably going to be the best this year are the fields that the water could just run off of. You know, we're going to have erosion issues. We're going to have ditches. We're going to have other issues in those fields. But if the water could get away quick enough, um, you know, we're still going to have some good crops. And, um, you know, generally when you've had enough moisture that you've damaged crops on those poorly drained fields, those well-drained fields sometimes are, are exceptionally good in those type of years. So question, Dan. So we got a question that came in, got some field edges to spray, um, with Roundup. Yeah. Um, just going to do some spot spraying for grass, cut the bird, <coughs> velvet leaf here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, beans are an R1. Is it beneficial enough to throw the fungicide in when you're doing that at R1? Will you still get the benefit of your fungicide at R1 versus Okay. okay, so the question, if, if not everybody could hear that, was you're going to be cleaning up some fields that are that are woolly uh, at about the R1 growth stage, um, asking about the possibility of tank mixing the fungicide in with glyphosate at that growth stage. So the first thing I would say is we want to make sure that we've got a labeled tank mixture that, uh, that we're considering there. Typically, <clears throat> you're not going to mix uh, a Roundup application with a fungicide because your fungicide is going on at R3 and your Roundup label stops at R2. So, so typically those two things are not gonna be in the tank together. In Dan's question scenario, we're spraying at R1, which is earlier than we would recommend the fungicide. Uh, is there still a benefit to fungicide at R1? Absolutely. Um, is it as big a benefit as at R3? Absolutely not. Um, so technically I would say, you know, that R1 fungicide application, you know, might still have a benefit, might have enough of a benefit to pay for the application um, since you're already there making the application anyway. But that R1 application does not take the place of the R3 application. In an ideal scenario, what I would do in that scenario is I'd probably use an economical fungicide, maybe a straight stroby at a, at a half rate for that first application. And then I would come back, I'd, I'd rotate to a different mode of action or different product. And I'd use my full rate fungicide at that R3 timing. You know, maybe you could delay that R3 timing towards late R3 because you already put a reduced rate on at R1. You know, I think there probably will be some producers that <clears throat> wanna just make that fungicide application one time. I'm there already, it's a convenient time for me to do it. A lot of the things that we do because they're convenient aren't necessarily the best, but convenience is important to people. So sometimes we do things that aren't the best just because it's easy. And uh, I'd say throwing that fungicide in at R1 would kind of be an example of it's not the best, but it is easy. And in an ideal scenario, I'd probably do, <clears throat> if you want to do that, I would, I would come back again at R3 and a half, late R3 with a better fungicide application um, after making that early fungicide application. And then also be sure you're still on label with your herbicide as we talked about earlier. So, so let's expand on that just a little bit, Lance, as far as fungicides. We get this question a lot about the ideal timing of fungicides. And we've talked right. about a little bit on Ask the Agronomist before, but you know, let's try and understand or describe a bit better as to why we have those timings. Right. Uh, as being our optimal opportunity to maximize the return on investment for a friend's <clears throat> Right. And, and corn and, and soybeans. So I, I, I'm going to try to draw a little picture here and I'll, I'll move the easel up a little closer. We're, uh, <clears throat> we're a little bit makeshift here today from the, from the hotel. So <clears throat> we're, we're looking for that R3 timing in soybeans. The, the, the window is, is technically R2 to R4. R2 would be flowers all over the whole plant, which that's probably the growth stage a lot of soybeans are in. <coughs> R3, you're looking for a three-eighths of an inch long pod on one of the four uppermost nodes. So the way you count nodes on a soybean plant is you look for the first leaflet that's got an emerged leaf, 
And they don't have to be fully grown, but if the leaflets are, are separated, you can count there's three leaflets there. You follow that petiole back to the, to the main branch. And so there's node one. You count down one more, node two. You count down one more, node three. You count down one more, node four. So that would be the four uppermost nodes. And somewhere on those four uppermost nodes, you're looking for that three eighths inch long pod. <clears throat> and if you can find a three eighths three eighths inch long pod on one of those four uppermost nodes, that's R three. <clears throat> if you've got pods down here that are three quarters of an inch, or you know however big they happen to be, those don't count because they're not in the four uppermost nodes. <clears throat> what sometimes happens, and I, we especially see this in early planted soybeans, these soybeans are still growing. <clears throat> so you come out here today, here's node one. Well, three days later, there's another new node out here. And so now that's node one. And so now this one doesn't count. So, you know, the four uppermost nodes are going to keep growing up. And sometimes that plant is growing fast enough that it kind of appears as though they really never get to R3. They will. But sometimes they hang out in that late R2 phase for a long time. That's actually one of the reasons we see a yield benefit to early planted soybeans. They spend more time in R2, uh, more time flowering, uh, more time in that reproductive stage. And the R2 growth stage is the growth stage that actually gets longer, uh, typically with early planted soybeans. So sometimes that <clears throat> R2 to R4 window is a pretty wide window. The bulk of the data would say that the sweet spot for fungicides and soybeans is R3 because you've still got a lot of flowers yet to, a lot of blooming yet, yet to happen, a lot of pods to set, a lot of pods to fill. Uh, that's kind of the, the, we think the best timing between, you know, when disease incidence occurs, protecting the plant through the most spray too early, you're, you're leaving that plant vulnerable to disease pressure in the R4 or R5 stage when it's trying to fill pods. If you spray too late, you might get too much disease started by the time you make the application of the fungicide and that plant's already been through a lot of the more stressful time in its life. So that, <clears throat> that R3 is kind of what we consider to be the sweet spot. In corn, the, the equivalent sweet spot would be from tassel emergence to green silk. So VT to R1. VT would be tassel emergence, R1 would be pollination, and from VT to R1 is kind of the sweet spot in corn. There are people that recommend, you know, waiting later when you have low disease pressure in corn. I'm not a fan of that recommendation personally, because <clears throat> if, if you're looking for plant health benefits from your strabillion and fungicides, you want those products in that plant's life, in that, in that plant, during the most stressful time of its life. And that's going to be usually two weeks after pollination when it's trying to fertilize and set and fill and keep all those kernels on the ear. And so if you wait till brown silk, that might be fine if we've got low disease pressure or we've got late uh, diseases come in late, but you're kind of missing the sweet spot for the plant health benefits of the strobies. Um, so that, that's why we target that VT to R1 application as kind of the sweet spot in corn. Yeah, that's a that's a big difference between an indeterminate plant like a soybean that has the capability to keep doing some vegetative and reproductive things longer throughout the season versus a corn plant that it's step by step, one step after the next, and there's no reverting back. So right, and with you know with with corn, we you know generally if you if you wait to that BT stage, every leaf that corn plant's going to have is out, so you are treating all those leaves at that time and you're actually getting the best coverage on the top third of the plant, which is the part of the plant that's going to contribute the most to yield. And uh, so you want to have all those leaves out before you make that application, but you want the application on early enough that, you know, you're protecting that plant, you know, during the most important part of its life. And we also need to get, because we have, you know, we have two, we have two categories of fungicide. We have preventative, we have curative, we do not have the third category, and I think some people think that we do have this category that I call resurrective. We do not have those. So, so you cannot resurrect a plant 
that's already got disease infection. So the curative fungicides do not, you know, heal a plant that's already been infected. Uh, the preventatives, you know, need to be on earlier. The curatives can go on a little bit later. But if the disease lesion's already there, you know, even a curative is not going to help you. So, so that's why we got to get those fungicides on before that disease gets too too far gone, too far developed. Um, been having a lot of conversations about fungicide, and one other thing I'd like to talk or I'd like you to address just a little bit, Lance, is kind of how do we dissect the fungicide? Um, we have different modes of action within our fungicides that we have on the market, just like we have different modes of action as a herbicide right. to try to control weeds. Let's talk a little bit about the three components of a fungicide real quick and why having those three components is important right. to be utilizing with a fungus uh, and diseases, generally speaking, versus when you're talking weed control. We, right. we like to have multiple modes of action in weed right. control, and it's right. almost even more important to have multiple right. modes of action in, in fungicide. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. So, so basically, as the fungicide use of fungicides and row crops has developed over the years, we've gone from single mode of action products up to you know a lot of three-way stack products. Um, you know, there's there's multiple modes of actions in fungicides just like there are in herbicides. Historically, we had you know, a lot of straight strobies or a lot of straight triazoles. Uh, then we went to two-way mixtures of strobies and triazoles. As that market continues to develop, now we've got the SDHI um, mode of action that is getting incorporated into a lot of these three-way mixtures. And so really we're, we're broadening the spectrum of diseases controlled because each different product typically has different streaks and weaknesses on the diseases they control. They can impact the amount of residual control that you can get, but the main benefits resistance management. And, and, and Adam, you're right. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about resistance management with weeds. Well, fungi and insects and, and other things develop resistance to pesticides even faster than weeds do. So <clears throat> if we continue to use straight good fungicide products, and we've already seen this with uh, frog eye resistance to the strobies, um, you know, we're going to lose the efficacy of those different classes of fungicides. So you, rotating modes of action, using multiple modes of action, using full rates. You know, I know I made a recommendation for a cut rate a while ago, and some of my colleagues on the fungicide side of the business would say, don't do that, make full rate application all the time. And, uh, you know, that gets into, you know, that what, what's better for economics isn't always better for resistance management. And, um, you know, using, you know, those three-way mixtures, we think is going to prolong the effectiveness of those different classes of, of fungicides. Yeah, absolutely, because uh, a lot of these insects, a lot of these diseases, you know, spores from a fungus, they can sporulate, they can move, and there can be multiple life cycles right. of these diseases in one growing season uh, compared to a lot of our weed species, actually. <coughs> right. So yep. um, really important to have that conversation, in my opinion, with whoever you're working with on your fungicide and uh, making sure that you're targeting whatever your main diseases are with your fungicide and also making sure that you're addressing that question of, am I using multiple modes of action? Right. And, and I would say too, to, to maybe help you feel a little better about, you know, doing good uh, resistance management. In the case of fungicides, if you've got three products in that fungicide, you know, you're probably going to get better disease protection, better disease control, more plant health benefits. And so generally speaking, while you're doing the right thing from a stewardship standpoint, you're also increasing your odds of getting a positive yield response and you're increasing your odds of getting a bigger yield response. So hopefully while you're doing the right thing for resistance management, you're also doing the right thing for increasing your yield potential. So, so you're not necessarily just spending more money because those three-way mixes are going to cost more. Um, I, I'm a big believer in, in fungicides. You get what you pay for. And a $10 fungicide is not going to give you the same benefits as a $22 fungicide. Um, you, you might like to hope so, but that's probably not realistic expectation. So great conversation on, uh, on fungicides and, you know, a lot of questions. Obviously, this is a time of year <clears throat> where a lot of that's taking place. But, you know, we talked a lot about the weather, the environment we've had this year and how that's affected our crop. How has it affected nutrient availability for our crop? I mean, 
obviously the big one that comes to mind is nitrogen. There's obviously other nutrients that could be suffering uh, from the ridiculous amount of load of water we've been having yeah. around here that's kind of flushing things down through the system. Yep. You know, do you think uh, we have a good amount of nutrients left for this crop to finish out? Is there anything we can do to help that? Are we mineralizing enough nutrients from the soil? Uh, you know, what's what's kind of your take on our current status given all the moisture we've had, right. particularly I'd say with the corn crop, as to are we going to run out of nitrogen? Right. So, you know, at, at some point in that plant's lifetime, it generally is going to get into a nutrient deficient situation. It's, it's hard to prevent that at some point. If you do nitrogen rate studies in corn, the corn that stays green, clear to the ground, all the way through grain fill that, that never looked like it was deficient in nitrogen uh, is not going to be the most profitable uh, level of nitrogen. So at some point, as we're going through grain fill, some amount of firing, some amount of nitrogen deficiency in corn, uh, you should actually be seeing that. If you're not, you're, you're over applying nitrogen, um, probably not the best thing to do from a stewardship standpoint, and you're probably also costing yourself money uh, if you don't see some firing in corn at some point. Now, however, with the moisture conditions we're under, you know, we've had corn that's been fired you know, all year long in some of the wet spots. Uh, we don't like to see that. Um, you know, you asked the question of what has the impact to nutrients been? Any any mobile nutrient in the soil is going to be getting washed out of the root zone. Um, in the case of nitrogen, we can lose a lot through denitrification when we're ponded. That's that's typically the way we lose nitrogen in in our good prairie soils is through denitrification, which is losing as a gas off into the atmosphere. Uh, we can leach it to the tile lines and, and lose it that way as well. So we've undoubtedly lost nitrogen. We're also not in an ideal situation for mineralization of nitrogen when you've got a waterlogged saturated soil because the soil microbial biomass, which is largely involved in that mineralization process, is not functioning as they should be in that anaerobic environment. So it's kind of a double whammy. We, we lose a lot of the nitrogen that was in a plant available form in the soil, and we can't release more nitrogen out of the soil to, to benefit that plant. A third way that crop is struggling is the roots really are not able to function when they're in a saturated environment. So even if there's nitrogen there, if that root system is completely waterlogged and there's no oxygen in the soil, that root system's not really gonna be able to intercept and, and utilize those nutrients. So are, are less mobile nutrients in the soil like potassium, phosphorus and things, um, you know, the, they're still there, but the root system is not really functioning correctly in that saturated anaerobic environment. So the plant's not able to, to uh, take in those nutrients. So it's not an ideal situation. Um, we, we definitely have negatively impacted nutrient availability. Uh, some of that through loss, some of it through root function. Um, there isn't a whole heck of a lot you can do about it, in my opinion. Um, you know, in the case of a macronutrient like, like nitrogen or potassium in corn, you can't get a lot of nutrient in foliarly. And those macronutrients that that plant's needing pounds per day, you can't put pounds per day on foliarly. Uh, are there situations where we would see a benefit from a foliar application? You know, there absolutely are. Um, I can't always predict when those are going to occur, but, but it, uh, it, you definitely can see benefits to foliar feeding crops. Um, but we have limited potential of how many pounds of nutrient you can get into that plant through the leaves. We're designed to take pounds up through the roots. And if the pounds aren't available or the roots aren't functioning, you know, we're not able to get it into the plant. Most of these really yellow areas and fields are yellow primarily due to suffocation and anaerobic soil conditions and lack of oxygen more than a nutrient deficiency. So if the soil environment would improve, those plants would be able to find more of what they need and the color and appearance of that plant would improve. Uh, so the main issue is, is the wetness. Um, you know, there are situations where we've got deficiencies, but the, but the main issue is not a deficiency of nutrient it's a deficiency of oxygen and an excess of moisture. So, um, I, 
even though we got a lot of stress plants out there, I get the question all the time, and I know you get it too. I mean, does our does our crop have good potential yet? And and I feel like we've had a little bit of a, you know, we've talked about a lot of the stresses that are going right. on. Right, we have been kind of negative today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I want I want to kind yeah. of turn this around just a little yeah. bit here and, and say. You know, yeah, I got a room full of salesmen here that want somebody to want to buy something. That's so. right. That's right. I mean, rain makes grain, Lance. Yes. Yes. I mean, we're, yes. we're at, the top, with at the top of the hill. That is always true. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> we're flirting with having just a little bit too much rain uh, yeah. at this point in time. We don't need any more for quite a while. Yeah. But just give us your comments, generally speaking, on what you think the potential is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm still very optimistic for the potential of a lot of corn that's on relatively well-drained soils. Um, I, I am I am concerned about the beans and, and I'm not concerned that all the beans are going to be horrible, but if you've, you know, been hitting farm averages of 80 plus, you know, the last few years in soybeans, uh, I don't, I, I think that's a little out of reach. Um, you know, we may be in, in a year where good beans are 65, not 90. Um, you know, in the corn, it's all going to depend on drainage. If you've got a well-drained field, I mean, there could be 300 bushel corn out there. But if that 300 bushel corn's also got 10 acres of zero, uh, that field average is, is going to come down fairly quickly. So it's all going to relate to, to drainage in, in both crops. You know, if you've got a field of, of beans that look good, that have managed to grow, that have good color, you know, a lot of blooms, a lot of branches, um, you know, I would be very optimistic about the potential of that crop. Uh, we've been, we've had moderate temperatures, you know, we've had, you know, barely any days over 90, uh, all year, uh, which is always good for yield, you know, cool, cool growing seasons tend to be high yield years. We've had ample moisture, which tends to support yield. Um, we have been cloudy, so solar radiation has been reduced and we could actually have some situations where, you know, that could be impacting yield in a, in a negative way. Uh, I, I really think the saturated soil conditions is going to be the primary, you know, negative driver on our yields. But, you know, if, if your crop looks pretty good, you know, I, I think your crop is good. Um, you know, if it looks pretty rough, I, I hope the good parts of the field kind of offset the rough parts of the field. But um, I certainly think there's, you know, there's fields that have very good yield potential. Um, you know, it's, there's going to be a lot of variability. You know, it seems like we say that every year. Um, and, and we do because there's variability every year. Um, but there's going to be variability from field to field and tremendous amounts of variability within field. And, um, you know, we're kind of used to that. But uh, we might even see more of that than, than maybe normal. Yeah, uh, just depending on that surface range, I think that's a, you mentioned that earlier, I think in corn anyways, that's going to be a big component as to yeah. Yeah. how well your, your corn crop has has set itself up to succeed. Yeah. So. And soybeans as well. I, I was looking at a field, a uh, neighboring field of mine that uh, <clears throat> they just put a bunch of tile in uh, two years ago. And this field's fairly flat, but it's not a poorly drained soil naturally. It's got a good tile system in it, and and this field's planted to a April planted beans, and, and you can see every tile line in that field. And it, there's about a 20-foot wide green streak on top of every tile line. And then in between, you know, every tile line, those soybeans get a little smaller, a little yellower, and then you get close to the next one, they get a little bigger and a little greener, and you get right over that next tile line, and they're beautiful again. Now, now that field with the weather conditions we've had, the tile lines would have to be about 30 feet apart for the whole field to look good. And, and there aren't many systems out there that are only 30 feet apart. But, you know, if you've got one of those, you're probably going to be happy that you do. And if you've got a tile that's, say, 100 foot spacings, you, you may be thinking about splitting that down to 50 foot spacings, um, watching what's going on in that field with the moisture that we've had. Yeah. So one last thing I'd like to touch on here, and if anybody has any more questions, uh, please get them into your rep, tweet them, put them in the chat on YouTube, a lot of different ways to get a hold of us. And we love to have good conversations about agronomic issues that are very specific to West Central Illinois, which is where we operate as a team. And uh, one, one question that's been kind of coming up here and there is corn rootworm. Where are we at with corn rootworm? Uh, do we see that little bugger making a resurgence and where yeah. are we seeing that? We've seen it here in West Central Illinois. We've seen it in other parts of Illinois, right. uh, other regions of Corn Bell. Where are we at on corn root? Yeah. So uh, 
some of you know uh, Jim Donnelly, who's a, a colleague of, of Chris and I's. That's our counterpart in Northern Illinois, and and Chris and and Jim and I like to uh, pick on each other agronomically from time to time. And and one thing that uh, that Chris and I can pick on Jim uh, for, unfortunately, is the amount of rootworm pressure that that he has to deal with. Northern Illinois has historically had a lot more corn on corn. Um, they've they've historically had heavier rootworm pressure. And then you combine that with the fact that Northern Illinois has been dry really most of the growing season. There, believe it or not, there's still places in Northern Illinois that that are dry and and would benefit from from more moisture. Um, rootworms are far more damaging in dry weather than they are in wet weather for two reasons. You know, losing your roots uh, is going to hurt you worse in a drought than when you've got ample moisture. And you know, rootworms just like corn doesn't like wet feet. Rootworms are not particularly good swimmers, and they can't hold their breath indefinitely either. So I think we've probably actually drowned some of our rootworms, and our pressure isn't as heavy as Northern Illinois. So I, I dug my first rootworm trial a week ago. This was in a field of 10th year corn in Warren County, and um, did not have heavy rootworm pressure, you know, based on the root digs that I did in, in that field. Um, I've seen some pictures from Northern Illinois where you know, the entire root mass is smaller than my fist because all the rest of it has been consumed by rootworm larvae. And, um, you know, that's a that's a, a tough situation to be in. So I know Northern Illinois uh, cannot get SmartStacks Pro, you know, which is the next generation of rootworm control uh, into the marketplace quick enough. And so they're looking forward to launching that technology next year. Um, you know, we're primarily rotated, you know, here in, in the central part of the state. And we're really not seeing heavy rootworm pressure on our rotated acres. Uh, we have seen heavy pressure in some corn on corn situations, but it's not as consistently heavy as it is in, in other parts of the country. So I think the, the, the wetness that we've had this year might, you know, <clears throat> be holding the rootworm back from, from coming back and maybe as quickly as we thought they were, were going to. Um, we have noticed an, an uptick in pressure over the past few years, but this this wet environment is is not particularly conducive to uh, uh, to rootworm populations either. So that could be a you know un unfortunately, if it's wet enough to drown rootworm, it's wet enough to reduce the yield of your crop as well. So it's not necessarily a a, a great thing that we've been so wet that we've killed off rootworm, but um, you know we probably did drown some larvae in some uh, in some fields this year. How much, uh, how much of an overwintering effect with the weather do you think there is with corn rootworm? Um, I, I, I think it's minimal. Um, with and it depends on the species. You know, southern, you know, southern corn rootworm does not overwinter good in cold soils. That's why they're primarily the south. Northerns that go clear up into Minnesota, northern Iowa, the Dakotas. Um, you know, you really can't kill a northern corn rootworm with with cold. Western corn rootworm are pretty tolerant to cold conditions as well. So <clears throat> I don't think we necessarily see a big impact on rootworm overwintering um, due to wintertime temperatures or the amount of snow cover that we get. Um, the, the primary thing that, that favors rootworm development is, you know, what are the environmental conditions during and after egg laying uh, and how wet or dry is it in May and June? So dry conditions in May and June um, really adds to the survival of larvae. And uh, if all if you have good egg laying, good conditions for egg laying, and then good conditions for larval survival in May and June, and heavy pressure, you know, those are years when you're going to have lots of issues from rootworm. And then if you add some drought stress on the crop, on top of the heavy rootworm pressure, you know, that's when you see those you know, 80 and 100 bushel yield hits that we sometimes see from 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 severe rootworm damage. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I get that question a lot, though. You know, our, our winters seem to be varying greatly here in the last few years, yeah. and everybody always speculates how much influence that does or doesn't have on the corn rootworm population around yeah. here. Yeah, I think it. Uh, I think overwintering temperatures, in fact, impact other species of insects more than it does rootworm. Um, I've seen some studies that, you know, rootworm has a, a pretty good ability to, you know, survive very, very well in deeply frozen soil. And, and the other thing to consider is, I mean, the, the temperature of frozen soil is typically around freezing. 
So, so when soil freezes, you know, it might be 20 below outside, but that frozen soil is about 31 degrees. You know, the frozen soil is not negative 20 like the air temperature is. So, so that rootworm really doesn't experience the, you know, ambient air temperature that you and I are feeling because uh, once that soil freezes, it really doesn't get much colder than freezing. Well, we're coming up here on about, uh, what is it? We got about five minutes left. Okay. If anybody has any, any questions or comments, again, please get them in to your rep or to just about any of the social media outlets uh, that are out there. We, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube, um, we're on Facebook. So there's a lot of ways to have a good conversation with us and ask questions that are, that are very, very specific to our region here in West Central Illinois. So we really invite you to please tell anybody and everybody that uh, you like this type of content, these types of conversations, share it. Uh, you can like it on YouTube. You can share it through YouTube. And by all means, if you don't have the time to watch it or have suggestions for different times to watch our live presentation of Ask the Agronomist, uh, let us know. Okay. Get a hold of anybody. Uh, anybody that's involved with the Calvin Nasgro and we will try and take whatever feedback you guys have and adjust our schedule so that we can try and get as much live interaction as we can. Uh, a lot of people watch these Ask the Agronomist after the fact. Right. There's a lot of archived good information right. you can get back on YouTube and, and follow up or hear what we had to say about current events, but we like to have a conversation. Uh, so please get us uh, Get in touch with us any way you can. And, and, and the main benefit to you as a viewer of asking questions is that prevents the agronomist from getting up on a soapbox and talking about something that he wants to talk about, which is what I'm going to do for the last couple minutes here since we didn't get any more questions and Adam was begging for questions. So, so this is your fault for not asking questions. But uh, I didn't bring my soapbox with me today. But uh, if, if I did, I'd, I'd, I'd get up on it. Um, I want to talk about soybean weed control a little bit. I mentioned earlier that I, that I do think we're going to have some pretty weedy soybean fields out there. Some of that's due to we couldn't make timely applications because of weather delays. Some of it's due maybe to lack of growth of soybeans and not as good a canopy. If you've had hail you know, damage, you've lost canopy that way. Obviously, the excess moisture that we've had is, is not really beneficial for, for weed control. But I have a lot of people that, you know, get frustrated with some of the restrictions in, in the dicamba system, like the June 20th cutoff date. And, and there's just this general feeling in the industry that, you know, we need more time to get our work done. Um, and, and I understand that, that time is, is precious and I understand that days are sometimes limited. But just because you have the ability to try to control weeds and soybeans in July doesn't mean you should be. Uh, ideally, you know, we need to be targeting those two to four inch tall weeds, regardless of what herbicide system you use. And there are very few fields of soybeans planted in the state of Illinois in a normal growing season that should not have their post application made by June 20th, regardless of what system you're using. So I've seen a lot of fields that got sprayed since the 4th of July where we're spraying 12, 18, 24, you know, waist high in some cases weeds. We really don't have technology today that will control two foot tall water hemp and soybeans. Um, so, so we really need to try to focus those applications earlier in the season. I know it's a logistical challenge to get the work done. I know it's nice to have flexibility to make later applications. That's one big benefit of the ExtendFlex system that uh, people have the ability to, to spray Liberty later in the system than you can spray Dicamba. But, you know, we, we really, you know, are, are in a tough situation when we're trying to kill, you know, knee high or bigger weeds uh, with any of the systems that we have available today. So, so if you're frustrated with your weed control and soybeans at the end of the season, be a good time to sit down with your suppliers and, and talk about, well, what would work better next year? And I think in a lot of cases, what would work better next year are earlier post applications than what I saw people making this year in some cases. So, uh, you know, worst case scenario, if you go too early, which I'm not sure there is any such thing as too early, uh, but if you do go too early and you get a late flush, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that. But a late flush is a lot easier to deal with than a two foot tall weed that was an early flush that got sprayed late. So, so that is a much worse scenario to find yourself in than making another pass to control some small weeds that come up late. So I'll, I'll get off my soapbox there. Uh, any more questions have come in 
while we were talking there, Adam. So no. So we'll be back again in two weeks. If you've got feedback on if you'd like to see this at a different time of day, obviously, those of you who are here, this time of day works for you. Uh, and the people who aren't here didn't hear me say that. So, you know, it's kind of hard to get feedback from people who aren't here. But those of you who join, if you have a different time of day that you would like to see this at, if you've got questions, uh, text them, email them, send them in, and um, we'll be with you again in two weeks. Everybody stay safe.